Hello, my name's Tom Condren. And I'm Rick Sexton. And welcome back to the Year 3 podcast. Today we're talking about some more post-surgical complications or management. And today we're talking about perioperative blood sugar management. So as always, we just need to offer a brief disclaimer, just to say that the following slides are representative of our own student interpretations and don't represent the medical school or medical practitioner's advice. So although we'll be talking about this in the surgical context, this is also a medical topic and is important in a whole range of patients. We'll first go over the medications. So what about uh, exenatide, glycoside, glibenclamide, and pioglitazone? All the diabetes medications are ones that are difficult to remember, I find, so we'll go over them, the different classes, and what we think you should know for the basics first, and then build upwards from there. So the main classes, Rick, are... So the main uh, categories of diabetic medications are metformin, sulfonylureas, GLP-1 agonists, DPP-4 inhibitors, SGLT-2 inhibitors, acarbose, insulin, and this one that I really struggle to say called thiazolidinediones. Thiazolidinediones. It's a real mouthful, that one. So the main considerations for surgery is to maintain glucose in a homeostatic range. What do we normally aim for, Rick? I think it's typically below 10, but it's you've got to keep in mind that, you know, the last thing we want is for people to be having hypos on the ward. Yeah, so typically we'd be aiming from the 5 to 10 range around surgery. And we really want to manage the medications that have the potential to cause a hypo, remembering that some of these patients might be fasting. And there's a whole range of stress which might involve cortisol release, which may impair their normal glucose management. So what if patients had sugars that are too high when they're on the ward? So this is a topic that we'll get into later, but really the old method was sliding scale, but now we've almost all moved to basal bolus which is basically a piece of paperwork you should familiarize yourself with that's available on the wards which goes through a protocol of how much insulin to prescribe and of what types it's actually quite simple and easy to use yeah and it's one of those things if you've never done it before and you're unfamiliar it is confusing but once you've done it once or twice it's it's a lot easier we'll finish up talk about what we think you should know for year three and your exams and then we'll finish with a review question so rick one of the main medications that we hear about is metformin tell me a bit about this um so metformin is very commonly prescribed it's the first line agent that's used in type 2 diabetics and it's advantageous because it doesn't have a risk of hypos and it can cause some weight loss. Disadvantages are it often causes some nausea, vomiting and diarrhea and in patients with chronic kidney disease and renal failure it can be problematic because it's renally cleared. Yeah so that's right metformin is a drug that we use mostly for type 2 diabetes but it's also used for PCOS which is associated with the metabolic syndrome and the main points are that it won't cause a hypoglycemic event does cause weight loss and the following you should know about is that if your GFR is above 60 you can use a full dose if it's between 30 and 60 you normally use half dose and typically if the GFR is under 30 it's contraindicated. Why is that Tom? There's this rare complication that they talk about Rick Have you heard about lactic acidosis? Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was actually a thing though. Yeah, I think it is one of those things because it is rare. There's not a great deal of literature about it, but certainly it is a common thing that people stop being prescribed metformin at GFR below 30. So we know that it doesn't cause hypoglycemia and we know that it causes weight loss. But what are the main side effects that we need to be aware of? So important side effects of metformin include the malabsorption of vitamin B12, nausea and vomiting, anorexia, 
And I mean anorexia as in loss of appetite, not anorexia nervosa, and diarrhea. It can infrequently cause a rash and, like we said, rarely cause lactic acidosis and has been linked to acute hepatitis. But the main ones certainly would be the GI side effects. What about uh, in gestational diabetes or women who are pregnant, Tom? Can they use metformin still? Once again, this is a bit of a controversial topic, but for the moment, the answer is no, it's contraindicated in gestational diabetes. So Tom, we've had this patient, they've got type 2 diabetes, they've been on metformin now for six months, and we test their HbA1c, and unfortunately, it's still above 7. What agent would you suggest next? So the next line after metformin, remembering of course that before metformin, all the good things like diet, weight loss, exercise are recommended, we're talking about the sulfonylureas. So these are drugs such as glycozide, gliplazide, glibenpramide, and glibenclamide. They're all quite a mouthful, but I like to remember them as the glides because they all start with GLI and end with ide. Rick, do you know how these drugs work? So my understanding, Tom, is that they increase pancreatic insulin secretion um, and thus improve glycemic control that way. Yeah, and as you would imagine, because they increase insulin secretion, they do have the potential to cause hypoglycemic events. And because insulin does cause us to absorb glucose into the fat cells and make uh, lipogenesis, they do they are implicated in weight gain. Do you know uh, what sort of patients would be contraindicated for the glides, the sulfonylureas? Is that patients with uh, renal and hepatic failure? Yeah, so once again, renal failure is another contraindication to this medication. The main side effects that we need to be aware of are, once again, the hypoglycemia, the weight gain, but the infrequent things such as GI side effects, nausea, diarrhea, metallic taste sometimes, headache, rash. They're a bit harder to remember, but um, certainly you should be aware that this drug does have the potential to cause hypoglycemia events. So if we were to continue our scenario and we were to say that both the metformin and the sulfonylureas were not effective in controlling the HbA1c, what's another option that we can add? Uh, there's agents called GLP-1 agonists. Yeah, so this is, the drug name is Xenotide, but you may hear it called Bieta. What do you know about this, Rick? Uh, not as much as I should, unfortunately. So these are agents which increase insulin secretion again, and they suppress glucagon. They're actually another type of injectable, so not everything that's injected in diabetes is insulin. Do you know what effects they have on weight? They actually cause weight loss, and I think that's through appetite suppression. Yeah. The other important thing we should know is that they can cause hypos. Obviously, they are increasing insulin in the body, and typically they're used after sulfonylureas. Something that I guess is evolving at the moment is that xenotide, which is the GLP-1 agonist we're talking about, has recently gone from being a bi-daily injection to actually being available in a once-a-week form. So it seems that because this is a new drug and it's being developed at the moment that we may see changes in the future. Do you know what side effects we need to be aware of? So common side effects, again, it's a common theme, are nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, reflux, abdominal pain, fatigue, and hypoglycemia. So let's just consolidate that again because these are difficult to remember. We have xenotide, which is GLP-1 agonist. It can cause hypos and a range of GI side effects. The last thing that we probably should add to that is that, like sulfonylureas and metformin, it can't be used if your GFR is below 30. Okay, Tom, so our patient's on now three or four different medications, but we still can't control their diabetes. So what's the next potential line? Yeah, so I guess after this, it does become a little bit more 
complex and sometimes some practitioners may even just go straight for insulin but other classes of drugs that we should be aware of is the dpp4 inhibitors or the glyptins so how do they work tom so firstly some examples would be citagliptin saxagliptin vildagliptin linagliptin or allogliptin but as the name suggests they do all end with the glyptin they work by reducing glucagon and increasing insulin much like the other agents and because they they increase insulin they can of course cause hypoglycemia yeah so the form that i came across most of last year in general practice in particular was citagliptin also known by the brand name genuvia only mentioning the brand names of course just to make you familiar because unfortunately you do hear these more often than sometimes the compounds themselves they also do come in something called janumet have you heard of that rick no so janumet is just a combination of genuvia or citagliptin and metformin just another thing just to make you familiar with and just so you can recognize it when you hear about it uh, so what about side effects tom okay so like we said hypoglycemia is the first one you should know about headache and musculoskeletal pain can also occur what else rick uh, infrequently there can be constipation and if you're really unlucky you can get pancreatitis from these agents yeah i guess this is through its effect on the pancreas to increase insulin secretion so let's cover that again the dpp4 inhibitors the glyptins an example would be citagliptin aka genuvia and the side effects we should be aware of would be hypoglycemia headache gi side effects and infrequently pancreatitis let's move on Interestingly, there's a new agent. What about the SGLT2 inhibitors, Tom? Yeah, I always find it hard to remember these, but I guess the name suggests what they do. GLT, of course, referring to the glucose transporters, and the what's the common drug that's in this class? So there's a couple, but the one that's most well-known is that dapagliflozin. And these are an interesting class of drugs, and they're subject to quite a lot of ongoing research at the moment. So SGLT2 inhibitors inhibit the reuptake of glucose in the proximal convoluted tubule of the kidneys, which means that you're losing sugar through your kidneys. Yeah, that's right. I like to remember dapagliflozin, the flozin kind of gets your urine flowing. I don't know if that helps, but because you're secreting increased amount of glucose through your urine, of course, normally you don't have any glucose in the urine. This does cause this mild diuretic effect and can cause you to become a bit dehydrated. What else can it cause, Rick? It can cause some hypotension and hypoglycemia. And really interestingly, it can actually cause diabetic ketoacidosis in the setting of a normal blood sugar. Right, I wasn't aware of that. I guess also because you do have a bit more glucose in the urinary tract, like in uncontrolled diabetes, you do have increased events like candida, thrush, and some urinary tract infections. So where does this drug fit in the scheme of things? At this stage, it's a little bit uncertain, but when I was in on GP rotation recently, to get it under the PBS, it has to be after a patient has failed a sulfonylurea. Yeah, so you use metformin, a sulfonylurea, and then I guess your options open up. Some people use xenotides, some people will use SGL2 inhibitors. It can cause weight loss, which is a good side effect for a lot of these type 2 diabetics patients. Hypertension, hypoglycemia, and I think that rounds it up for what you can remember on your first pass covering this drug. So just to be complete, we should also cover the drug called acarbose, and I like to think of this as the bowels equivalent of the SGL2 inhibitors. What is it, Rick? These are a class of drugs that prevent carbohydrate absorption in the gut. So I guess that explains the name. A, like without, carb, like carbohydrates, oh, it's acarbose. So yeah. it's used when other 
medicines are contraindicated. And it can't be used when there's renal impairment or gastrointestinal disease such as Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. I guess that makes sense. You don't want a whole heap of undigested carbohydrates floating around in your bowel when you have bowel disease. And with that in mind, if you can imagine there's a lot of undigested carbohydrates in your gut, it's going to cause some pretty unfortunate side effects. Yeah, so these are things like stomach pain, bloating, flatulence, diarrhea, and of course it can cause hypoglycemia like a lot of the other agents and liver problems. I haven't seen this drug a whole heap, so we shouldn't dwell on it. Alright, so what about the final category of drugs, the glitazones? You mean the class that you couldn't pronounce, the thiazolidindiones, the glitazones? Yeah. Yeah, sure, we can talk about them, but in reality it seems like this drug class has fallen out of favour. Mostly because they can cause cardiotoxicity. Which isn't a great thing when you're trying to prevent heart disease. Yeah, that's right. And they can also be a bit hepatotoxic. So some examples of the thiazolidindones or the glitazones would be pioglitazone or rosiglitazone. So these work by increasing insulin sensitivity. But as you say, there is concerns that the risk may outweigh the benefits. So I don't think we should dwell on them. Just to be aware that they are a class that you may hear about. Okay, so we're finally at what everyone was waiting for, the insulins. What are the main things we need to know about insulin, Rick? So insulin is an endogenous hormone, obviously. It's not that complicated from our perspective. It causes weight gain and hypoglycemia potentially, and there's several different forms. Yeah, that's right. So the forms are the ultra-rapid, rapid-acting, and long-acting. Sometimes you hear about intermediate-acting, although I don't think we really need to cover them, given how they're used in our hospitals. So give us some examples, Rick. So ultra-rapid acting includes Novarapid. Also known as insulin aspartate. And then rapid acting includes Actrapid. Also known as Humulin. And then the long-acting agents are Lantus. Also known as insulin glargine. Once again, we're using some brand names interchangeably, but only because you do hear these things so commonly on the wards and in general practice. But largely in the hospital, you'll be using long-acting to provide, so Lantus to provide basal insulin and then using an agent like Actrapid postprandially. Yeah, that's right. So they're the two ones that we should be ultra familiar with. Nova Rapid, of course, being the correctional. And that concludes all the drugs that we think are important for you to know for third year. We will now move on to some practical examples on how you may need to apply these drugs, in particular in the perioperative setting. So that covers most of the diabetic drugs that you should need to know. What are the considerations around the perioperative period, Rick? Well, we need to consider, so patients will often be fasted prior to surgery to prevent their risk of aspiration when they get the anaesthetic. So we need to consider, are hypoglycemic agents appropriate? With patients who are taking metformin, is there a risk of dehydration and renal impairment? And just as an additional point, if patients require IV contrast for imaging, metformin may put them at increased risk of uh, kidney injury. Yeah, that's right. So when you're fasting, you are at risk for hypoglycemia. And we're not too concerned about hypoglycemia in the context of things. That being said, we do want to control it. And I guess this is one of the things to know about is that someone may be normally on just pure medical management with only oral medications may actually change over to having short-term insulin around surgery just to simplify their glycemic control. I guess also, Rick, when someone's having surgery, there's a lot of stress to the body and cortisol release. So this would cause hyperglycemia 
and can actually mean that you may need additional requirements to your usual medical management. So often just to simplify things, patients can be put on insulin rather than altering their diabetic medications around this time. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things are changing around surgery and the hospital diet doesn't really accurately reflect anyone's natural diet. So it's fair to say that a lot of people's blood sugar will fluctuate in hospital. So we do like to have something such as the basal bolus insulin, which does simplify things and have a protocolized approach to keep them in that golden zone between 5 and 10. So our chief aims are keeping patients hydrated with normal electrolytes and preventing diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperosmolar non-ketotic state. Yeah, that's right. So BGL between 5 and 10, and also we want to have some good pre-planning and post-operative planning so that patients are very clear about how we're changing their medications before the operation when they go into the fasting state and then also afterwards and part of their discharge summary often will go back off the insulins, back to their usual regime. So just to revisit that, Tom, what are the considerations for surgery? So we want to look to simplify their regime and stop most agents temporarily in favour of starting insulin. So some patients who aren't on regular insulin at home may be required to come into hospital while they're fasting to manage their blood sugars with insulin. Yeah, a classic example of this would be the patient who needs a colonoscopy and is having a lot of essentially diarrhea causing agents needing to fast and because they're on hypoglycemic agents actually need to come in beforehand during the fasting period. So we move to the basal bolus insulin to control the blood sugars. So we'll talk about exactly how this is done shortly. What else? So ideally diabetic patients should be first on the list for theatre in the morning so they're not going through prolonged periods of fasting. Yeah, and we like to plan exactly when this is going to occur. So we often speak to the surgeons beforehand to let them know who's diabetic and to get them in as soon as possible. Other consideration is, is this a major or minor surgery? So typically a major surgery is classified as one that requires overnight stay or a minor, which may be something like a colonoscopy or an endoscopy. And patients may need insulin and a 5% dextrose infusion preoperatively or at induction. Yeah, so this is just to keep glucose at a nice range, and this is a way that we can titrate their glucose during the operation. All right, so lastly, we'll talk briefly about the basal bolus insulin regime. So this requires your blood glucose to be monitored four times each day. So that's upon waking and after each meal. And this isn't recommended for patients with DKA or HH. So that's hypoglycemic, hyperosmolar state. That's the type 2 equivalent to DKA in a rough sense. So the first step for basal bolus, what's that, Rick? Well, we'll cease all regular insulins and find the most recent HbA1c, which is the pre-admission control and their current body weight. Step 2. So we calculate total insulin doses based on the pre-hospital regime. So for patients with diet-controlled insulin, they're given 0.3 units of insulin per kilogram. Yeah, that's right. And the exact calculations are provided on the basal bolus chart. But just for information, if they are on oral medications such as metformin, that would be 0.4 units per kilogram. And if they're on insulin, that would be 0.5 units per kilogram. What's step three? So in step three, we work out how much insulin is required based on their body weight. And then we give half of that as a long-acting dose, so that's the basal dose, and then we give the other half of that, we divide it into three and give a dose after each meal. That's right. So 
And then step four would be to review the blood glucose management after beginning, aiming for five to 10, and step five, making the appropriate adjustments. These are all outlined on the back of the chart. Review question. So Tom, just to reiterate the basal bolus regime, we have a patient who's 100 kilograms who's come into hospital for an elective laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Their HbA1c we find is 6.9%, and they've been on metformin and glycoside for some time with good control and no hypoglycemic episodes. What would you do? Okay, Rick, so this is a patient that has good control before coming into hospital and they're on oral medications. So if we were to calculate that, we're using the 0.4 units per kilogram and we've used 100 kilograms to make it easy for us. So their total insulin dose will be 40 units per day. So if we were to then make 50% of that, the insulin glycine, which is a long-acting, would use 20 units, and that's typically given at night time. The other 20 units, which is given as the act rapid, that's given after each of the three meals. So you divide the remaining 20 units, remembering we're talking about 40 units total, into three. So because 20 doesn't go into three evenly, you may choose to use two meals of seven units and one meal of six units. And then, of course, you would review to see if there's any hypoglycemic events and make the appropriate changes as per the back of the chart. That's great, Tom. So we've covered a lot of pharmacology today and also covered the basal bolus, which is an important way of managing glucose around the time of an operation. What do you think are the important take-home points for year three? So there was a lot of information in this talk. I think the biggest things, I'd have a reasonably solid overview of the diabetic medications, particularly the commonly used ones like metformin. Yeah, and the sulfonylureas, I'd say, would definitely be worthwhile knowing. I guess it is a topic which you can beat yourself up a bit about because you hear about it, you think you've got a handle on it, and then because there are so many different classes, you can get confused. So you do need to revisit it often, I think, to get any of it to stick. And also try and simplify the side effects. Maybe instead of knowing it does nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, simplify it in your head to GI side effects. It may be better to have that simple understanding first before trying to remember a long list. And if you considered it for an OSCE station, so I mean starting a type 2 diabetic on a, on metformin might be a reasonable OSCE station. So if you felt comfortable talking through it, talking a patient through it, knowing side effects, knowing why we're doing it, etc. Yeah, and I think the last thing that's important for third year is just to be aware from the practical sense of the basal bolus charts and how to fill one out. This may or may not be tested, but I feel it is a task that we should all be expected to be able to do as an intern. So diabetes is a huge problem in Australia and um, has enormous clinical implications. So I think at some point we'll be talking about diabetes further. Yeah, that's right. And because there are so many patients out there, you've got to understand that this is something that clinicians have a real easy time finding patients for for OSCE exams. And they're really easy to test your observational skills, describe and find signs of micro and macrovascular complications. But we will cover this in another talk. I think that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Hi, guys. It's Tom here again. Just chiming in to say thanks for listening and to do some housekeeping. We have recently upgraded some of our recording equipment to improve audio quality and we are looking to involve more fourth years in these recordings for some variation. We are also toying around with some format ideas and we would appreciate your thoughts on what has worked and what has not. 
Feedback is crucial to making these recordings as high yield and enjoyable as possible. You can either talk to me or other hosts on the wards or shoot me a message to let us know your thoughts. Until next time, thanks again. Don't let it, don't let it.